Happy Mother's Day! Today is a day for mothers. I think um, Freddie Mercury said it best when he said, Mama, ooh. That's the end of the lyric. Um, we will be uh, in Genesis chapter 16, both for Mother's Day. I'll probably never mention Freddie Mercury again in any sermon in the history of all mankind. But I did it today, so that box is checked. Uh, Genesis 16 will be both helpful for our trek through the book of Genesis, but also helpful because it's about two prospective mothers. And so, uh, talking about moms this morning, I do. There was a, a great Mother's Day weekend miracle yesterday, and uh, Dana Washington was able to get baptized there. This is great. At, at some point, the rocks uh, in the water, they dip off real steep. So after Dana went back, I lost my footing, and I was just kind of appreciating everything, but I was like floating away. Um, but Dwayne reached his hand out, and he saved me. So, um, so it was one of the more perilous baptisms I've been a part of, but... Uh, It was awesome. So Dana got baptized yesterday with some beautiful family, which is great. Very exciting. So um, if you haven't told her congratulations, go ahead and grab her, tell her. But it's been, it was awesome to be able to see her family, her and Dwayne's family, and to celebrate together. God held off the rain just for that time to have this awesome uh, baptism. And it's great lighting for these pictures. So God really, uh, God delivered once again on the, the rain. So. Uh, As it being Mother's Day, I do want to share a little bit about my mom. Uh, My mom, uh, Janice Mines, she is awesome. She's a listener of the podcast, everything I say. I know she's going to listen to right now. I called her this morning. We had a great, great conversation. Um, But uh, this is my family a few years ago. uh, And uh, what's so funny? Uh, That's me in the bottom. My sister in the middle, Kelly. And uh, my brother up top, he's now a doctor as of last weekend, so it's come a long way. Uh, Dr. Mines, celebrate with him. Uh, here's another one. This is the famous, we all broke our arm in the same week photo. Um, so if anyone is having a tough week in parenting, just, I bet people 30 years later, just something like, I'll never forget that your family had all three kids break their left arm in the same week. And to boot, my parents were not there. We had a babysitter, um, Stephanie, who is still your faithful sister in Christ. Um, so she's out in the LA Church of Christ now to this day. She's at our wedding. She's, Stephanie's awesome. But uh, it, was a ba- it was a rough week. We had to call the parents for the third time to tell them that the, the arm has been broken. Only in the church and the family of God, um, perhaps. And also without the police being called. It was also Texas, and the laws down there are pretty loose, so I don't know. Um, but this is a photo of us there uh, with the left arm. You can see, if you look closely, I have a Dallas Cowboys cast, so go Cowboys. Um, it's hard to see, but uh, there you go. But um, we're talking about moms today, and I'm grateful for my mom. I told her this this morning, but I was thinking about my mom and what, what she's taught me and what she's taught the kids. And, you know, praise God, glory be to God, all three of us, all three kids are 
faithful disciples, not without our own sets of sins and difficulties and struggles, but a family of disciples, and that's, that's a very encouraging thing. And one thing I told my mom was, Mom, as I thought about it, I've never ever questioned, like, I've never questioned how much my mom loves me. That's never been something I've worried about or had to really kind of strive to figure out, but I've always known that. And more than that, I've always, maybe even to a fault, I've never doubted that God loves me. And I believe that that's something that my mom helped instill in me throughout my entire life was mom loves you, God loves you. And those are two things um, that I I never really ever, ever doubted. Um, And just I don't want to imply that I've doubted it with my dad at all. But uh, I think my dad was a big part of it as well. But I think my mom kind of spearheaded the the God loves you discussion. And so um, I always will appreciate that in a lot of ways we are who we are today because of of mom. And um, so anyway, we could talk a lot more about that. But I wanted to talk today about a couple mothers in Genesis 16. So hop over there. And the title of the lesson today is Baby Mama Drama. <laughs> we will have some baby mama drama in Genesis chapter 16. And we will talk specifically about a young woman named Hagar. And that's a representation of Hagar up there. Now, remember, I know it's been a few weeks since we've talked about this, but God has just made a, a covenant with uh, Abram. Uh, Abram had this great victory in battle where he saved his, his nephew Lot. And then God has a covenant basically where he has uh, animals, right, cut in half. He walks, the smoking pot goes between the animals basically to make a covenant. Let me be like these animals if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, which God eventually does in Jesus Christ. Even though we fail and we don't uphold our end of the bargain, God does actually uh, allow the, the bloody sacrifice of his son um, to uphold the covenant because God is faithful. But now, 11 years later, it's only one word later in our, in our Bible, but it's 11 years since that promise. And for most of us, a promise that is not fulfilled after a week is difficult enough. Um, and imagine 11 years, a promise, not only to bless the nations through uh, Abr- Abram and Sarai. And the word bless, by the way, just means honor or to, to bring about a, a value, or to bring about a respect, which we all deeply, deeply desire. Respect, honor, love. And so God says he'll do this, but he says he'll do it through the most important thing at the time. It's amazing how God works through, through culture, but one of the most important things at the time in an ancient culture was kids. It's the most important thing uh, to have a child. Um, and, and so God promises to a couple that was unable in their whole life to have children, he promises one to Abram and Sarai. And if we begin reading, after 11 years of that promise, apparently going unfulfilled yet, just imagine how you would feel. Uh, as a couple parents, uh, where God made a promise, but enough time has passed for perhaps you to begin looking at different options. In verse 1 of Genesis chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So apparently after 11 years, Abram is pretty content to wait for this child to come. But Sarai is not. Um, She's willing to do something else. Now, this seems pretty strange to our modern eyes, though back then it was not any different perhaps than someone today doing IVF or or some other option of you're unable to have a child. And so you but it's important enough for you to have a child to look at other means. And back then, obviously, the only real other means was to, to, to have another woman be able to bear that child. 
And so Sarai could eventually, could really still be a mother, be motherly, have a child in the household that could be hers to, to care for to take. So this is actually not that strange back then. It was pretty common to be able to do this because it was just that important to have a kid. A kid meant, meant everything. Not only did it mean honor, it, it meant your family name was able to be carried on. It actually was your social security yeah. to have a kid. If you, if you had no kids and you got old enough, I mean, you would just be torture and pain. You had no, no security, but in, in, in your later years in life, you had kids to be able to take care of you. Kids meant a ton. Kids were the world. Uh, uh, honor in, an, in a Middle Eastern culture to this day happens top down. In our individualistic culture, it doesn't happen that way. For example, you see, like, um, you see the son of, like Drew, son of Mike. You'd say, wow, Mike was a great guy. Therefore, Drew must be a great guy. That's how they would say or, or speak. It would be, my parents give me honor. Right? It kind of works that way. And so it was so important to be able to continue to build this honor. It was so important, by the way, why our Gospels begin with them saying, Jesus is son of David. Jesus begins with honor, coming from a line of the most honor, honor family you can think of in Jewish culture, the line of David. So this is a huge deal. It's not necessarily similar to us today. Women back then uh, were trying to get pregnant most all the time. Women today mostly avoid trying to get pregnant all the time. Um, but back then, that was very much the opposite and very important to Sarai. And so I want to ask you, is this so unusual? And what is it about this decision, as we begin to see the, 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 the facts unfold of the story, what will happen? And is God for it or is God not so much for it? Even though it probably was culturally acceptable, uh, very much so culturally acceptable. So we'll keep reading. Perhaps I can build, even how she says that, right? I, I can build a family through her. Sarai's thinking about her family. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. She can't even say her name, right? I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do not do it. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The word in Hebrew for mistreated is the same word that's used about how the Egyptians treat the Israelite slaves. Uh, so probably with, I mean, we don't want to speculate too much, but it could be physical violence, could be verbal violence at the least. But when it says Sarai mistreated Hagar, it was something intense. Uh, it wasn't just uh, something light that we might think. So Sarai mistreated uh, Hagar. Um, the angel of the Lord, well, let's, let's start in verse, uh, yeah, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord in verse 7 found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was, this, it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Notice she only answers half the question. Where you come from and where are you going? Well, I can tell you where I come from. But I don't think Hagar knows where she's going. I don't think she has a plan. I think she's just running. She doesn't even know where she's going to next. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi, and it is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So we do have, in fact, some, some baby mama drama as we read Genesis 16. But the question is, what was this story meant to really teach us? Now, we have Abram, this guy, and he's done a lot of good. He's done a lot of bad. Remember, Abram had a couple instances where, uh, out of fear, he told uh, some foreign peoples that his wife was actually his sister so that they wouldn't kill him. So really put his, his wife uh, in danger to protect himself. So both Sarai and Abram aren't exactly perfect people. They continually, out of fear, decide to make decisions uh, that will seemingly benefit themselves. Um, and so here, Sarai is not content to wait out this promise. God, it's been 11 years. And so out of her impatience uh, for God, even she blames him, right? She says, God has prevented me from having kids. So... I'm going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to do this. Now, the custom back then, I don't think, is it's interesting. Uh, what is it that was so bad? You know, someone today who struggles with infertility to go about other methods is not such a bad thing, right? But what is it about this story that's so interesting? And there is something, I think, hidden beneath the surface. And if you actually read, if you were to read, and when we talk about reading the Bible, as hard as it is for a lot of us, it is actually best to try to read as much of it as possible in one sitting if you're going to try to get the context. And so if you were to read Genesis 16, and maybe some of you picked up on it, if you were to read Genesis 16, the first few verses, it remi- some of the phrasing reminds you of something. And so what it does is actually it reminds us, and the author of this book reminds us, uh, Moses reminds us as he writes of another situation. Now it says, uh, Sarai took her slave Hagar and gave it to her husband. It's almost word for word from Genesis 3, yeah. right? Uh, the woman, the wife, took and gave it to her husband, Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam. The, the sin of Eve was to control, to manipulate, to be able to try to figure things out. To, to, to Actually, um, uh, Monique earlier today in her communion said these very words. She goes, it was out of my control. That's why it was so hard. Um, and then she later said that but I know that God cares for me. And so one of the hardest things about any kind of parenting, but especially I think um, even it can be a stereotype of mothers. If a lot of you guys have seen TV shows or movies where the mom is kind of this manipulating character, I remember uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, the mom there, she was very manipulating and she would kind of get her way and do her thing and she would kind of be invasive in the life a little bit. And it was kind of this, this stereotype, right? And there's uh, another movie recently we saw with this, this, this matriarchal mother who kind of would, would say things in a passive aggressive way or do things to try to get her way. And it's kind of a, a stereotype, just like it's funny that the apathetic husband is a stereotype. In most commercials, like, it's the mom saying, like, I realized my house was a mess and my husband never helps. And the husband's, like, stuck in the blinds, like, ah, I can't do anything. And she's like, so I decided to buy Lysol because I'm in charge. And the husband's like, you're right, you are in charge, I don't do anything. So, like, that's like, if you look at most commercials, it's like the dumb husband, the dumb husband who doesn't know nothing, and the mom who takes control. And she knows what's best. She knows how to get things in order, so she's going to go ahead and buy that product. And so that's actually most marketing. Um, and so, but that, those are pretty, pretty decent stereotypes at times, right? And not always true. Stereotypes are not always true. But it's based on this idea where both Adam and both Abram are pretty lazy here. They're apathetic. Um, they say, 
they have almost no role in the story. They just say, okay, let's just, just keep the wife happy. Just, just let her do what she wants. I'm just fine. Do what seems best to you. Um, and then here, Sarai decides to, to go about this route. Now, in a culture where having a kid meant everything, all of us, even before we finished the story, knew that something's going down. It's just, it's too, there's too much stock put in this thing for them to be at peace about what happens. There's too much opportunity for jealousy or uh, envy or any number of things. And so as we think about security through control, and I think this is a struggle for a lot of us, is that we want to take control. We can have security through control. And what happens both with Eve and both with uh, Sarai is a fear. Remember the serpent in Genesis 3? He says, God doesn't want you to know what he knows. So there's an insecurity in Eve of, I don't know all that I should know. In order to know what I should know, in order to know as much as I can, I need to eat this fruit. And same thing with Sarai. She wants a kid. She's not able to have the kid. There's a fear. There's an insecurity. And even how she phrases it, so I can build my family. She's obviously insecure that she won't be able to build her family, that she is saying it's her fault. She is insecure about not being able to be fertile. She is taking it on herself and perhaps the guilt, perhaps the anxiety, perhaps the fear, perhaps it, it, it moved her out of fear to make this decision, to pull this other person in, into, into her scheming, and it's her choice. Hagar didn't choose it, right? I mean, she pulls her in. And then once Hagar conceives, it's just this great big mess of fear, envy, and, and violence. And for a lot of us, this is a cycle that we can get into quite a bit. It begins with fear and security, then control, then self-reliance. And then that self-reliance moves on to pride, and that pride, fear, and security, and then we get in this, this cycle of taking things into our hands. And that fear and insecurity, you know, fear is really the opposite of trust. And trust is another word for faith. And so a lot of times, almost every struggle that we're experiencing right now is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. We don't like to talk like that. And I'm one of, the, one of the worst people at this. I'm someone who's going to give, here's what happened, here's the details, the other person did that, other person. If we had just made this, I, I don't really bring in, you know what, I'm not trusting. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. Um, my quiet times, you know, before we started this, this miniseries, we're, we're struggling. Most of my quiet times uh, went into writing these sermons. So my times with God were really about, were not personal really at all. They were about how to help other people. And how to convey messages to other people. So for weeks, even months, I wasn't having personal times with God where I would get down with God on my knees and I would apply the scripture to my heart and I would, it, would, it would just be for me. Drew, how's your faith? And I realized that that was a, a decision. That was a lack of trust. Because I didn't trust that, you know what, Drew, all those things that you're going to do for ministry are going to be okay. They're going to be fine. It's not about you being perfect. Whether you blow it or not, whether the story is good, whether all that stuff is too long, too short, whatever, it's going to be fine. How's your relationship with God? And out of fear, I was trying to work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder on works of the ministry. And then what happened was my faith was gone. Now I was just preaching and I, I was preaching without faith. And that was very scary because I was perpetuating. And a lot of times, I believe, perpetuating things I was saying without faith. It was just um, a cool perspective or it was some data uh, about the Bible or it was some, something I read. But it wasn't about faith. And I... I I appreciate some people in my life who challenged me on it. And I had to, I had to become aware of, where's my faith? Where's my trust? Am I excited? I don't trust God. Why don't I trust God? And my fear led me to try to control by working harder on, on, on doing things like this, which led to more self-reliance. I got to do more next time. And even if it went well, the, the, danger, the danger of taking control is that even if it goes well, it's almost worse if it goes well. 
Because then you just rely on yourself more. See, I did do it. See, I got it. My husband can't be trusted. I told you. So I'm just going to take charge. And we just take charge. And then we get self-reliant. And then we get prideful. And then when someone challenges us on it or or gets exposed somehow, or it doesn't go so well, we crash or we blame other people. I mean, what was Sarah's first response? She blamed Abram. It's your fault. He's like, I didn't do nothing. I just said, go for it. I don't, don't be mad, you know? And then she's just like, and then she mistreats Hagar. To the point where she probably hurts Hagar. I mean, what's Sarai feeling in her heart? It's got to a bad place after 11 years. It's gotten to a really bad place. To the point where this innocent Egyptian woman, this Egyptian servant, she she has to run away. She has to run away with a pregnant woman on the run in the desert with no one to help. It's a dangerous situation. And it began because of a fear and insecurity. And I, I just began to think, you know what? For me personally, I've got the first question I have to ask myself is, do I trust God? Do I trust? Am I faithful? Before we go on to blaming the other person, before we go on to blaming our circumstances or our spouse, before we go on to saying how hard it is to do this or that or the nature of our circumstances, let's first ask that question. Let's start the cycle and say, before I try to take control, do I trust? And trust is difficult. It's a tough one. And so as Sarai decides to not trust, to take things into her hand, and as her husband gives into the sin of apathy, to not help his wife be faithful. And a lot of men, a lot of husbands in the room, we struggle with this. Our wife's feeling something, and instead of gently bringing her to a faithful decision, we're fearful. We try to get out of the way. We try to not get in the storm. So we just say, yeah, sure, go for it. Do whatever you want. And we, we don't have the courage to try to ask those questions to try to help our wives make faithful decisions instead of just try to avoid ourselves getting in, in the way and getting hurt. And so I think there's a lot here for us to glean, but it's not the main point of the passage. All that's so good. All the family relations, all the fear, all the faith, that's so it's good for us to take. But what are we supposed to really take from this chapter? And here we go. The weird little encounter. There she is at the well. And this man shows up. This representation. And in the Bible, when there's just one angel, it's usually a representation of God in some way. And so there's a representation. She doesn't know it. She's talking to a guy. If you read the Old Testament, and Dr. Gabe Santos did a good lesson on this at our MTA. Most uh, interactions between men and women like a little uh, romantic comedy of the Bible happened at wells. And so a lot of times in the Bible, you see, you hear of a well, you go, oh, snap, something about to happen. It's going to be when Harry met Sally over here, you know, like, so, so here she is at a well. This guy comes up. He asks her a question. He says, where are you coming from? And also, where are you going? She says, I'm running. I'm running away. And he says something amazing. He says, Go back and submit. I don't know about you, but I, that made me uncomfortable a little bit. A lot of us, we, um, we're humanitarians. We live in a world that's very, we, we believe in humanitarianism. We're taught, taught it at school and, and we sleep, drink, and breathe it. Um, is this idea of human equal rights, um, which are not a bad thing, but we, it's like a religion for a lot of us. It's very, very, very important. If, someone, if someone's rights are taken away, we lose it. We, we can't handle it. Right? There's entire parts of our, our political parties that are based on that. 
And so, and even our constitution, right? Certain inalienable rights, right? It's, it's in us. Jefferson wrote it. He lived here. So he wrote it, right? And so there's something in us that kind of goes, whoa, Mr. Angel Man. Do you not know that her situation with her husband is actually not very good domestically? She shouldn't go back. It's not best for her. Um, and I'm not saying that someone in a situation of domestic violence should stay in there and be a good Christian and take it. What I'm saying is it's interesting that the first thing that the representation of God tells this hurt, broken, lost woman is go back and submit. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he say, hey, I approached Sarai. We talked it through. She blew it. Uh, she's going to apologize. So when you get, I, mean, I want you to go back, but what are your demands? Okay, okay, okay. I, we can do that. Compromise. Okay, go on back. All right, I'll kick Sarah out. She deserves it. He, but he goes, go back and submit to your mistress. That's incredible. And even more incredibly, she obeys. Why? Why? Why does this lost, pregnant, Egyptian slave woman Obey. Uh, and there's something, something amazing in this. Um, and it, it, it's evident when, when Hagar responds at the end. Hagar says, you know what? I see the God who sees me. You know, earlier in the story, uh, we get a lot of, of uh, who Hagar is. We don't get a lot of her name. She's an Egyptian. And if you're an Egyptian in this Old Testament, that's no bueno. Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, right? It's the, worst, it's the worst part of a Jew's history. Jews to this day celebrate holidays that celebrate the freedom from Egyptian captivity. She's an Egyptian. So strike one. Okay. She's a slave. Strike two. She's a woman in a patriarchal society. Strike three. She's not got a lot going for her. And she's got a lot of labels that could label her. Even her, even Sarai says, take my slave. She doesn't even say her name. And so what encourages, what inspires, what empowers this woman who has every right to be bitter and faithless, to be faithful and obedient? It's that God sees her. It's that God sees her. And she even says that. God sees me. Um, when I was uh, younger than I am now, which I guess every story I tell is, was when I was younger than I am now. But um, when I was younger, we had a trip to Disneyland. And I think I've told this story before, but I, we lived in L.A., so we had the, um, the season passes, which have a lot of blackout dates, so it's kind of a trap. But anyway, we went. We'd go on like Tuesday or something. We went on a Tuesday or something. And I had this, I don't know why, I don't know why, but I sort of had this minor fascination with the uh, merry-go-round, the carousel there, you know, the up and down horses. And, uh, and I, I'm a middle child, and um, all you middle children out there realize that no one listens to you. So when you're the middle child, um, and the oldest, you know, and the youngest, they got issues, right? But the middle, we want to be the pacifier. We're the good kid, right? The middle kids out there. So so I, I want to see the carousel, and I can't remember whether I vocalized it or not. All I remember is being like, you know what? I'm not going to see the carousel unless I just sort of do this on my own. And so everyone was talking, and all these people, all my family was talking and trying to figure out where to go next. And, and my brother and sister um, 
I think they had, had us go in a certain direction. And I was like, you know what? It's just right there. It's, I can see it. If I just, I can just, I can pop over and I can come back. I can get, you know, so I, so I did it. It's sort of a rare moment of Drew individualism as a young man. Uh, I popped over to look at the carousel. And then I, I was like, this is, this, this is pretty awesome. I was like, actually, I remember being impressed. And then, which is a simple thing to be impressed by as a young man, but I don't know how old I was. I was like probably six or something. And I looked back and uh, family's gone. And, uh, you know, you go through like what they teach you. You know, I remember thinking, okay, they say to go tell somebody or no, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> Stay where you are. No, go find an authority figure. So I kind of ended up deciding stay where you are, I think, was the, was the one that stuck with me. Just stay here. Um, and plus more carousel. So I was like, all right, I'll stay here. Uh, I'll stay here for a while. And then eventually they find, they find me. But you know what my mom did is, you know, my mom, whenever I got lost, and I got lost a fair amount as a kid. But my mom would come up to me and she would get on her knees and she would squeeze me. And it's one of those hugs where you're like, she's happy, but she's really hurting me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or like she'd grab my hand and be like, oh, my hand is going to break. Um, but my mom always, whenever she came, she, it, there's something about being found and being embraced. It's something that a mom does, right? It's just your back, you know? And even when you go, we go back for holidays. We went back, we went into Atlanta recently for my brother's graduation. And my dad from far away, you know, is just kind of like, hey son, you know? And then my mom from far away begins the speed walk, you know? Like, and, um, and it's 50 yards, but she makes that time great. And she gets there, and then she, she hugs, you know, and she, I think this time she hugged me and then hugged me again and hugged me three times, and it's just like a lot of hugging, you know. And, but that's mom. Yeah, yeah. There's something about a mother. This, you know, and Jesus says it later in the Bible. He says, I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. You know, a hen is a motherly, a hen is a female. But Jesus says, I long to gather you as a hen does. Uh, that's what a mom does. And there's something that innately in us that we all need that. And as much as we want control, and Monique said it earlier, we want control, but we, she realized that actually God cares for her. And that God caring for her allowed her to be able to let go of control. And there's something powerful in that because Hagar, who perhaps her whole life was to everyone else an Egyptian slave, at this moment where she could be fearful and, 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 and she could take control. She could take things into her own hands. She could get rid of the baby. She could, I mean, she could do any number of things. But... She sees, you know, God cares for me. God comes down in human form just so that a lost slave woman knows that she's cared for. And notice God does not concede. God does not go, hey, listen, you're, you know, I want to give you grace. I want to, hey, as a well, you can get baptized and you don't have to ever do anything. You can just kind of live how you want. It's not what he says. He says, you got to go back and submit. But I want you to know I love you. I loved you so much, I came down to this desert to be able to tell you that. And she's pumped. She does, the, she does the thing that no other person in the Bible does. No one else. Fun trivia question. She's the only one in the Bible who confers a name on deity, who actually gives God a name. Pretty cool. I don't know if that's important, but she does it. But obviously she's moved and she returns to be able to submit to a woman who's mistreating her. And isn't that what being a Christian is? We live in a world that doesn't really like us, that doesn't really appreciate what we do, and it's heading more and more in that direction, that we are a minority culture. We are trying to raise our kids in a school that is a minority culture. We are trying to be great coworkers at a, at a business 
that prioritizes a bottom line and cutting corners and not in relationship, family, trust, and actually, and love. We live in a country that puts food and money at the altar of nationalism, humanism, and individualism. Those religions, those are, ideolo- call them ideologies, call them religions, it's the same, it's semantics. We live in a world that will not, they will mistreat us. And if you haven't been mistreated, then I, you know, like Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. The, the, our culture is going to mistreat us. They're going to try to get us to conform to their way of life. They're going to try to shame us by using words that we all hear all the time, you know, like, uh, you know, regressive and narrow-minded and those things. They're going to try to shame us into conforming. And so how do we all prevent that? How do we not just, oh, you know what? It is easier out there. Let's just go. Let's go do it. Well, we have a God who is a mom to us. That when he sees us at the airport, a hundred yards away, he's speed walking to come give us a hug so much because he knows that what we care about most is that we know that he cares for us. And just like with Hagar, God becomes human flesh just to know, just so she can know, you know, we get Jesus. God also became human flesh for us. And Jesus came and Jesus did not try to control you. Jesus didn't try to control Peter or control even Judas. Jesus cared for them. It didn't mean he didn't pull his punches. It didn't mean he didn't, he didn't lie and was soft about everything. He told Peter, Peter, you're in sin. Get behind me, Satan. But I love you, man. You're still the, you got the keys to the kingdom. So Jesus came primarily so that we can know that God loves us. And how can we know what love is? That God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us so that those who, could, who are living for themselves, could no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them. This is a little bitty Jesus moment. Thousands of years ago, Hagar gets, maybe this is Jesus. Jesus gets to meet this guy at the well. And she goes, I get a name. This is awesome. And she gets to go back. And God actually rearranges the course of the future just to incorporate a lost, lonely person. Ishmael was never in the plan. Isaac is the plan. He's 12 years from now, by the way. So Sarah, I keep waiting. Okay, all your scheming doesn't further God's plan. All your control doesn't make God do what you want him to do. Still 12 more years, Sarai, so hold on. But here's the thing, Hagar, who you mistreated, God's going to bring her into the family. God's going to bring all of us and all of us. We didn't know where we were going. We were sinning in sexual immorality and individualism and greed. We were living our lives the way we thought we should until that moment at our well where we got to really, truly encounter Jesus. And it was encountering Jesus that we realized it's not about me being perfect during control. It's about realizing there's a God who cares for me. And Hagar's decision to be faithful and obedient affected thousands of her offspring. 2,000 years later, another woman would be told that she's going to give birth to a son from an angel. And the angel Gabriel tells Mary, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And Mary's decision, even though the world was going to make fun of her for having a kid out of wedlock, they were going to mistreat her, dishonor her. She decides to be faithful and obedient. And because of her faith and obedience, millions of Jesus's offspring get to understand what it's like to have a God who cares for them. And so I want to, this morning, as we think about what it means to be a mother, the greatest strength of motherhood 
is that, that the comeback in the family, hospitality, I love you, I'm with you, holding the hand of your child, hugging your child, no matter what happens to that child, that a mother never quits. The resilience and perseverance of a mother is unparalleled. And in that, we see a little bit of Jesus as well. And we're going to close out with my mom's favorite song today, I Need Your Love, uh, which reminds us all of what it is to be a mom. Thank you, and to God be the glory.